This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for November 22nd, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we talk about some of the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. First up, news contributing correspondent Josh Sokol. We talk about the millions of migrating birds killed every year when they slam into brightly lit buildings at night, and recent efforts to prevent these deaths using bird migration forecasts. After that, we hear from researcher Aaron Pereira about controlling a robot from orbit. In this case, the robot is on Earth and the controller was on the ISS. Finally, in a sponsored segment from our custom publishing office, Director of Custom Publishing, Sean Sanders, talks with Professor Alberto Pugliese about the NPOD program to advance type 1 diabetes research. No one knows why birds are attracted to bright lights at night just like we don't know why moths love a flame. But we do know that tens of millions of birds crash into brightly lit buildings every year. Contributing correspondent Josh Sokol wrote this week on efforts to predict massive bird migrations and to dim the lights for them before they get to town. Hi, Josh. Hi. You have some really striking, sorry, examples of this problem in your story. Let's start with the 9-11 memorial in New York City. This is an annual thing. It's been happening for years, and the birds really like these bright lights. As a sort of commemoration of 9-11, they have these big pillars of light that go into the sky, and this is just a beacon for many different bird species. Ornithologists have known this for a while. Birds like to go into the beams and just fly around in a circle. That's not good. No, they're wasting energy. There are predators like peregrine falcons who will find other birds caught in that circle and pick them off. So it's just kind of a bad thing environmentally. The radar estimates of how many birds go to the beam show that maybe 16,000 individual birds can be attracted into this memorial within about 20 minutes of it turning on. And by some estimates in the U.S. anyway, we know birds are on a decline, maybe a big decline. What are the main threats besides these brightly lit buildings at night. What are some of the other threats to bird populations here? Basically, any kind of environmental degradation from habitat loss to potentially ineffective pesticide use. A big one is house cats. House cats are killing a lot of birds per year. Yeah. And even during the daytime, buildings can 
cause bird deaths just by if it's reflective, they just think it's, you know, you can just go ahead and then you run right into it. Yeah, big glass buildings really can attract birds during the day too. So how big of a problem overall is birds bashing into buildings? The sort of high-end estimate for how many birds are dying from collisions in the continental U.S. is almost a billion per year. That's the high-end estimate. Wow. How much this matters for different bird species depends on how many of that species there are and like what fraction of the population this is taking out. But suffice it to say, it is a big problem. The focus of the story is on this interaction between migrating birds, so big masses of birds on the move, going to different places, getting distracted by bright lights of buildings, and then maybe dying or getting lost. And one of the things we need to know first to solve this problem is where are the birds and where are they going? So what's the best way to track migrating birds? People have been able to collect reports on the ground, you know, in a given place at what time of year, what type of birds do you see? With the advent of weather radar and being able to use sophisticated machine learning to look in weather radar for birds, you can study birds more like a weather phenomenon over the entire continental United States. And when you do that, you see that regularly every year, there are nights where there are half a billion birds above the continental United States. There's, there are more birds in the skies than there are people sleeping in beds below. So using that data, using machine learning, they can now say when birds are likely to show up in mass? Yeah, a when and where, just like looking at storm systems or a weather phenomenon. You have a map of where they tend to go when they're migrating. And this is the bird cast? That's right. Uh, this lab at Cornell calls it a bird cast. They're able to take the weather forecast and add in additional information and predict pretty reliably when and where the birds will be. How reliable is it? Is it like the weather, like 10 days? It's kind of good, but as you get closer, like it's the next day, it's better? It's uncertain, just like weather forecasts. And because it depends on the weather forecast, the birds decide when to fly or when not to fly based on the weather conditions that night. So it's pretty accurate a week out. It's much more accurate one day out. And what are some of the ways that people are reacting to the bird cast? What are they doing to kind of protect the birds or get ready for them to come to town? The glass buildings are already there. The habitat is already destroyed. But one thing that conservationists can do is turn out lights. So there's an enormous interest in trying to get in different cities. Conservationists are leading campaigns. They're leveraging some of this new data and they're trying to get building owners to turn out lights during migration season and even individual homeowners to do the same. So this could be done building by building or city by city or my own personal house. Like which which seems to be the popular solution? Are we seeing more regulation, more laws or more case by case basis? There are some states like New York State or like New York City specifically where there's some legislation and city ordinances are now trying to be a little bit stricter about buildings turning their lights off. For the most part, lights out campaigns from this radar data, but also going back even a few decades, they have been on a voluntary basis. And when conservationists are leading these lights out campaigns, they tend to target iconic skyline buildings, the big, visible, brilliantly lit skyscrapers in a city first, because they want both to get those buildings to turn the lights off to save birds, but also they want to get other people to see that those buildings are turning their lights off. So there's kind of an effort to tackle the big bird magnets and the big visible buildings first and get them to voluntarily participate. Because they're attention magnets too, right? That's right. 
There's a lot of people in your story walking around buildings collecting dead birds. Is that part of the PR campaign or data collection or a little bit of both? It's a little bit of both. Historically, walking around buildings in the morning and picking dead birds up off the sidewalk was one of the only ways people did get to visualize migration flux of birds. Because you would just see what's coming through based on what you pick up the next morning. Obviously, also, that's inspired people who are these volunteers and conservationists to try to lessen this death toll and try to prevent it. So Lights Out campaigns were always driven by this volunteer interest in cataloging the dead birds and saving some of them. And nowadays, that there are other ways to predict the worst nights and to understand them, like by using radar, the bird collision volunteers, the people who go count the dead birds, the people who catalog them, the people who even try to do rehab for them, they are still participating because they're able to collect data on which birds are dying. And as these lights out campaigns go on, they're able to provide the ground truth information about whether or not birds are actually being saved. Yeah, that was my next question. Has there been you know, a report or data shared around that shows that dimming lights on big buildings in cities is having an effect on these bird migrations. Are they saving birds this way? There's very little direct data so far about a light town campaign over a whole city that can say how many birds it's saving. But the scientific studies, a lot of them led or participated in by this birdcast team are building up that link. So the study in Manhattan at the Tribute and Light really showed that one single bright light can attract a lot of birds. And if you turn it off, they'll go away. Another more recent study at the Chicago Convention Center showed that the number of lit window bays at this Lakeside Convention Center really determined how many birds died each night. And it suggested pretty linearly that if you just had half as many lit window bays, you would have half as many dead birds. Oh, wow. And the hope of these conservationists and the scientists is that that relationship holds, that if you can cut down light by half, you can cut down dead birds by half. Why are so many lights on in buildings at night when no one's there but birds? I think it's complicated and the answers are cultural and social. People like lights, they feel safe with lights. And there is not, in my mind, this is my judgment, there's not a robust way of thinking about this as a potential environmental pollutant. It just hasn't crossed a lot of people's minds. I had a scientist in this story tell me that people don't think that they're, that having their porch light on all night is the same as pouring paint down the sewer, but that in his mind, environmentally, it kind of is. I think that there's also a sort of political sensitivity in this country around regulation. So there are legislative solutions to get people to turn off the lights, but those won't work in a lot of places because people will be very upset about the government telling them what they can and can't do. So there's this kind of a scientific problem of understanding the threat. And there's this then advocacy and conservation problem of how to, how to reach out. And I think the, the Lights Out campaigns are trying to make things voluntary and they're trying to show success and to harness energy in a positive way around this idea of saving colorful migratory songbirds from light. And there's other good reasons to turn off your lights as well. Save electricity, save money. You can see the stars better. There's an argument to be made. There's a lot of pre-existing kind of dark sky rationale from the environmental harm, like you said, to energy savings, to being able to see a dark sky. One thing that's interesting about this whole bird migration approach is it takes the idea of light pollution, which is this diffuse, very difficult problem that's invisible to a lot of people, and it turns it into an acute crisis because the birdcast team can say, 
hey, tonight there are half a billion birds flying. And if you can turn the lights out, you can save them. So it's, it's kind of a different approach in addition to some of the, the arguments that have been around for years. Oh, very interesting. We've been focusing on the U.S. most of this time. I think that's because the bird cast originated here, it sounds like. But is there a larger, more international approach to tracking migration, to doing bird casts, and then also to do this kind of dimming? In my understanding, the public availability and compatibility of weather radar stations throughout the U.S. is kind of unique. So, for example, in Mexico and in Europe, you don't have the ability to knit together a bunch of different radar stations and get a, a macroscopic picture of migration. So that's something unique about the science in the U.S., where we actually understand more about where the birds are from the top down. But in Europe and North Africa, there are other ways of tracking bird migration and using that information for conservation. In Europe, is pretty progressive about dark sky legislation and policy, probably more progressive in some ways than the U.S. is. So there are nascent efforts like this elsewhere, too. Thank you so much, Josh. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Josh Sokol is a contributing correspondent for Science based in North Carolina. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And if you want to check out the BirdCast in your area, go to birdcast.info. Stay tuned for my talk with researcher Aaron Pereira about orbiting astronauts controlling robots on the surface of planets or moons or other things. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. How easy is it to remotely control a robot on the surface of another planet? Not so easy. How about if you're in orbit around said planet? Aaron Pereira and colleagues tested this idea using the International Space Station and an Earth-based robot. They wrote about it this week in Science Robotics. Hi, Aaron. Hello, this Sarah. So what are some of the challenges to controlling a robot or a rover from very, very far away, like planetary distances away? I think the biggest challenge is the communication. Yeah. We have to communicate with an object that is flying over our heads 300 kilometers up orbiting the Earth every 90 minutes. So that's difficult. On top of that, there's a delay. There's packet loss, which means some of our information doesn't get through. And there's also the operator in microgravity, which means he's basically weightless. <laughs> I thought this was really interesting. How difficult it is to see what a robot is seeing when it's not on Earth. Yeah, they only have two views. They have a view in front of the rover and they have a view of the manipulator arm, what the manipulator arm is directly in front of. It's kind of disorienting, actually, if you're not right there with the rover, not to mention there's a delay. So the video they're seeing is delayed about a second. From the ISS? Yeah. So the video the astronaut sees is delayed about a second in the same way that we might use our hands to feel our way around a dark room. They can use haptic feedback to feel more in touch with the environment, no pun intended. Hmm. 
what's interesting about this experiment is it's the first time to our knowledge that the astronaut has been able to feel force feedback in all directions when operating a robot on Earth, essentially operating the arm as if it were his own arm, feeling the planet's surface, picking up a rock by closing his hand, feeling the weight of that rock, and so on. Wow. Let's talk a little bit about the setup here. We have an astronaut in space on the ISS. We have a robot on the surface. Is the astronaut looking at a screen, wearing a glove? How can they feel this pressure or force that tells them what the robot is doing? How do they feel that? The astronaut is looking at a screen and Luca Parmitano, in that case, he also had a joystick and a handle to hold onto, plus another special joystick. It's a Sigma 7 force feedback device, which means he could move the robot's gripper in all directions and also rotate it and also grip objects. So he had these three things, laptop, joystick, and force feedback joystick. And what kind of tasks were the robot trying to do? It was simulating a geology exploration scenario. So the astronaut had to drive between three sampling sites and pick up rocks in those sampling sites in consultation with a team of geologists on ground. That delay that you mentioned earlier, is that in the visuals only, or does it also include the haptic or force feedback? Yeah, it's in everything. And the reason for this is, although the ISS is actually quite close to the Earth, for I think 95 minutes out of its 90-minute orbit, it's under the horizon relative to us. So we can't contact it directly. What we have to do is contact geostationary satellites, which are in three clusters floating above the Earth. And that introduces a delay of 850 milliseconds, almost a second. Nothing compared to Mars, but still enough to make it difficult to do this kind of stuff. Indeed. And the reason why we're doing this is in the future, we imagine that we're going to have teams of robots exploring and doing things on the surface of Mars or the moon or further afield. And these robots will need to be controlled. And we imagine that happening by an astronaut on orbit around Mars or the moon or wherever. What we're interested in testing is how well the astronaut can operate these robots under these space conditions. Since we don't have this sort of setup yet, we use the next best thing, which is the ISS. How easy is it to control something that's giving you force feedback when you're in microgravity? It could push you around, basically. Often in ways that which are kind of unexpected because of the delay. So if you hit something with your robot, you're not going to feel it until much later. What this can lead to is instability. Essentially, the robot doesn't stay at the position that it's commanded, but it sort of hammers on the ground like a crazy woodpecker. This is not good, both for the robot, which gets damaged, and also for the task, because you can't get anything done. For that reason, we have this approach called time domain passivity control. Passivity is essentially a property of an environment that doesn't have an energy source. And what I mean by that is... If I interact with a spring, I can push it, I can give energy to the spring, that's potential energy, but it's not more energy than I gave from my body, essentially. So that when the spring then pushes me back, it's less than or equal to what I put into it. And we call that a passive environment. When you try to do this in teleoperation, you have delays and you have discretization. And both of these could cause the environment to not be passive anymore. So essentially give you back more energy than you put in, and that can lead to instability. So what our system does is it looks at how much energy you're putting in and only allows the robot to exert that kind of energy on the environment. So for example, I'm moving in space and my robot is two and my robot hits a contact. 
Now, if the robot were to press down on that contact and push it, for example, it would be an injection of energy into the environment. But then there's me, I haven't felt that contact yet. So I'm still moving in free space without any energy. So my teleoperation is saying to the remote environment, hey, the guy hasn't put any energy in yet. He probably doesn't want to push this rock. And then it's going to reduce the force or reduce my movement, essentially. So it has like a buffer that says, don't be going and pushing on things until I tell you to really exert yourself. Exactly. And then when I suddenly feel it, then I can put some energy in. So now I'm feeling a force after this 850 milliseconds delay. And if I continue pushing, then I'm putting some energy in. And then only then can the robot put energy into the environment. So in this setup, you know, you did this from the ISS. Did you find that your robot no longer behaved like a crazy woodpecker? You know, what were the results of using this kind of system? Luckily, yes. So it was stable. So that was great. But another thing that we also need is for it to be transparent. And that means that the operator actually feels immersed in the environment because it's useless if it's very, very safe, but it's impossible to operate. Luckily, we got some good feedback from the astronaut. He was able to do the rock sampling. So in that respect, it's very much a success and we can start looking at the next steps. Can you talk a little bit about the immersion experience and why that's important? Important to say it's not always essential to be immersed in the robot you're controlling. You'll want to automate where you can automate. But if autonomy fails, either because there's a fault or because this kind of task was not predicted by the people who programmed the robots, or because the environment is just too difficult to allow automation, then you're going to want to go into the robot and be the robot in the remote situation. This is not just for space. This is also for terrestrial scenarios. So we have some projects, for example, in our project Smile, we're working on healthcare assistant robots to support vulnerable people from afar especially for elderly people or people with a disability, this can be really useful. But if an emergency happens, then what you want is a doctor or a medical professional to inhabit the robot straight away. Another interesting thing about testing this out in space is we have two conditions which are pretty unique. The first is microgravity, so weightlessness. And the second is a operating environment, which is high performance, high workload, high stress. Yeah. So, and when it comes to immersion, is the haptic feedback really important? I've tried out this scenario and I can honestly say, yes, if you've got delayed video or not great video, then feeling the environment is really going to help you know when you're picking up a rock, when you're touching the rock or not. I kind of want to play this video game, whatever it would be like. <laughs> it's really fun to do. <laughs> but also important is we don't just do it for fun. Haptic feedback is actually different in space people feel things differently in space. Can you give an example of that? You have reduced proprioception, which is the feeling of your own body. So you can't really feel whether your muscles are extended, your hand is stretched out in front of you or right in front of your face. You can't really feel that. Also your vestibular system, so your sense of balance and orientation, which is in your inner ear, is messed up because it's used to a constant linear acceleration in one direction, that's gravity. And it doesn't have that anymore. So for the first few weeks or a few days up to weeks of an astronaut being on orbit, they may suffer from what is called space sickness. Another thing is you underestimate mass. So here on Earth, mass is the same as weight. In space, these are not the same things. So my colleague was told by a cosmonaut that a throwing movement can actually dislocate the shoulder. 
I can't imagine being like, okay, I'm controlling something in space, but that the thing you're controlling is on Earth. So it's feeling all the Earth forces. Yes. I think that must be weird. <laughs> and you have to put your brain in that mode, even though you're on the space station and you're not feeling gravity, you're not feeling this orientation, but the robot totally is. Yeah. And also, yeah, humans move differently in space. They have a, a different motion strategy. They also move slower. That is very cool. And so now you have to build programs that can adapt what the astronauts are experiencing to controlling a robot, not just on Earth, but maybe the conditions on Mars or the moon. So there's going to have to be some kind of conversion for different places. There's so many things that we need to still test. This is just one experiment. We had some experiments prior to this looking at more autonomous tasks. So using what was called supervised autonomy, where you give more high-level commands to the robot. So instead of immersing yourself in the robot, you tell the robot, pick up that antenna, fetch that battery. And now what we're doing is we want to allow the astronaut to scale in between autonomy and telepresence and also command multiple robots. Why would an astronaut stay in orbit? instead of just going down to the surface of the moon or the planet that they're orbiting. It's more difficult to move people down to the surface because you've also got to take them off again. And with robots, I mean, you could just leave them there. They do that, don't they? But honestly, robots, you put the robots down there and it's a lot easier, basically. Why don't we just set a robot down and tell it to do things automatically? Go find some rocks, go visit that canyon. Why can't we just let it do its own thing? I mean, ideally we would. There are some scenarios where that would either not work or we want the intelligence of the human. So space is pretty unstructured. There's not a lot for the robots to latch onto. Also, the tasks are pretty open-ended. In a warehouse or a factory on Earth, you might have a repeatable task, parts or an environment which the robot knows and objects that it also knows or can detect easily. That's not the case in space necessarily. There's also, if you have a very open-ended task, then it's hard for the operator to conceptualize all automation possibilities for the robot. Also, automation can break, things cannot work, in which case we want the operator to be able to take charge. We had a previous experiment where we did just that. We imagined a scenario where there was already some structure on Mars. So the robot was maintaining a solar panel array and some other stuff. And the astronaut would command with very high level commands, like pick up that antenna or grab that battery box. But the astronauts were also saying they would like some more finer grained control to, to be able to control the robots immersively, like we're doing in this experiment, Analog 1. And in the coming, coming work that we're going to do, we plan to do just that. So we call it scalable autonomy, where the astronaut is able to scale up and down the amount of autonomy they use to command the robot and also to command multiple robots. Because when you're immersed in one robot, you can only command that one. Whereas if you've got the supervised autonomy concept where the astronaut operates as essentially the supervisor, then you can control a team of robots, which is essentially the end goal. Yeah, I can imagine watching your robot doing something really silly that they don't need to do between, you know, the start and the end of the task and wanting to just be like, okay, let's not do that part that you decided was important. We just need to do these other steps. Oh, they do that all the time. <laughs> Thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you, Sarah. Aaron Pereira is a researcher at the German Aerospace Center, DLR, and a guest researcher at the Human-Robot Interaction Lab at ESA.
You can find a link to the science robotics paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Up next, we have a custom segment sponsored by the Helmsley Charitable Trust and NPOD, the network for pancreatic organ donors with diabetes. Custom Publishing Director Sean Sanders chats with researcher Alberto Pugliese about how the NPOD program is driving type 1 diabetes research. A very warm hello and thank you for joining this latest Science Custom podcast. My name is Sean Sanders and I'm the Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science. I'm excited to welcome you to this interview from Science Custom Solutions in which I'll be talking with Dr. Alberto Pugliese from the University of Miami. Alberto is the J. Enlow and Eugenia J. Dotson Chair in Diabetes Research, Professor of Medicine, Microbiology and Immunology, and Deputy Director of Immune Tolerance at the Diabetes Research Institute, a designated center of excellence at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine in Florida. Alberto has been studying type 1 diabetes for over 30 years, focusing on its pathogenesis, pathology, and clinical trials to advance new therapies. Our thanks to the Helmsley Charitable Trust for their kind sponsorship of this podcast interview in support of NPOD, the Network for Pancreatic Organ Donors with Diabetes, of which Alberto is co-executive director, together with colleagues Mark Atkinson and Carmela Evans-Molina. The goals of the NPOD project are to recover relevant tissue from organ donor groups, share these gifts with appropriate scientific investigators who seek to prevent, reverse, and ultimately cure type 1 diabetes, and foster collaboration amongst these investigators. Alberto, thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. Thank you, Sean, and uh, hi, everyone. I'm delighted to be here. Alberto, for those listeners not familiar with type 1 diabetes, could you briefly tell us a little bit about the disease, what causes it, and how it shows up in the body? So type 1 diabetes is considered a chronic autoimmune disease where your immune system over time attacks the insulin-producing cells, which are pancreatic beta cells, and destroys them. As a result, patients can no longer make insulin and they need to rely on insulin injections multiple times daily. Unfortunately, insulin is not a cure and patients with type 1 diabetes still suffer from much morbidity and mortality in some cases from acute and chronic complications. There are about 1.6 million with type 1 diabetes in the United States alone, and of them, about 250,000 are children. But about 50% of those adults that have type 1 diabetes now actually were diagnosed when they were children. Overall, in the United States, there are over 40 million Americans that have diabetes, including type 2 diabetes, which is the most common form. But nonetheless, type 1 diabetes has major impact on people's lives. Number one, because it's much more difficult to treat. And also because, as I mentioned before, many patients are diagnosed as children. So they do have the whole of their lifetime ahead and they have to deal with diabetes for the rest of it. Both type 1 and type 2 are major burdens to society and are becoming more prevalent. So this is a major problem. Well, how is type 1 diabetes currently studied and what models are used? So type 1 diabetes is a disease that 
targets the pancreas, right? The disease mechanisms occur in the pancreas. And that's a very difficult organ to study because it's not really easily accessible. So beginning in the 1980s, researchers had come up with some rodent models of type 1 diabetes. The two more utilized are the NEOD mouse and the biobreeding diabetes prone rat. And both develop a form of diabetes that is very similar to type 1 diabetes. Actually, some similarities are quite striking, but many other differences exist. And at the end of the day, the mouse models cannot really tell us everything about the human disease. And there are specific questions that are unique to the human disease that we can just not ask in a rodent model. And also in the rodent models, we can manipulate the disease test therapies, and very often have a very positive impact and reverse the disease or prevent the disease. But in reality, very few of those therapies actually are applicable to people. I wanted to talk a little bit about NPOD. Can you tell us what it is and how it's an alternative for mouse and rat models to study type 1 diabetes? There is clearly a need to obtain pancreas from people with type 1 diabetes or even type 2 diabetes that can be studied to advance our understanding of the causes of the disease. To that end, almost 15 years ago, this was recognized by several of us in the field and especially by JDRF and Emsley, which are funding organizations that support research in the type 1 diabetes space. And what we did then is, is we established this program with the goal of collecting systematically pancreas and other tissues from organ donors with type 1 diabetes, so individuals who pass away and their families donate their organs to either transplant or research, and to make those tissues available to researchers. So can you talk a little bit about how NPOD works exactly? Sure. So NPOD is basically two things. It's a tissue bank, which is run by scientists, and it's an international collaborative study that focuses on understanding the causes of human type 1 diabetes by looking at the pancreas and other disease-relevant tissues. To do this, we have established collaboration with all the major organ procurement organizations in the United States. AMPOD is operational 24-7, 365 days a year, and we're always ready to receive pancreas and other tissues from organ donors with type 1 diabetes once the tissues are received, they're processed with rigorous protocols, and then the samples become available to that scientific community. However, investigators, in order to gain access to the tissues, they need to submit a scientific project. And it needs to be reviewed with a rigorous review process. And after approval, then they will receive the tissues. We also, and that's very important, we have established a screening program where we screen organ donors for the positivity for autoantibodies that are a very well-known risk marker for future type 1 diabetes. So in doing so, what we hope to do is identify individuals who were going to develop type 1 diabetes had they lived, but they didn't know. And so in those organs, perhaps we can capture the disease in the preclinical stage where certain etiological factors may be more likely to be present or active. And so that's very important. And since we started about 15 years ago, we have recovered pancreas from over 500 donors. About 180 have type 1 diabetes and about 50 have are these donors with autoantibodies. And the other key aspect of MPOD that I wanted to make sure to mention is the collaboration. 
We really engage all of our scientists and we bring them together. We promote interactions and collaborations among them and even outside if needed. And we, we establish uh, working groups, often internationally, because we recognize that there are fundamental questions about type 1 diabetes that a single investigator cannot honestly answer, does not have all the tools and all the knowledge to do it. I think it takes a village to figure this out and that's what we're trying to do. And I would like to invite people who are listening to us to visit our website, www.jdrfmpod.org and learn more about MPOD, how it works, who our scientists are, and the research that we're conducting and the discoveries that have been made by MPOD investigators throughout this year. Alberto, I, I understand that NPOD is looking to expand its focus somewhat to promote more interdisciplinary research to solve this type 1 diabetes issue. Can you talk a little bit about that program? Absolutely. We're happy that we have attracted the majority of type 1 diabetes investigators to our fold, but we recognize that there is great potential that investigators from other areas of research might actually contribute significantly to advance our understanding of type 1 diabetes. So we're really open to new ideas, to new technologies, to out-of-the-box thinking. We'd like to hear how someone in the cancer space, for example, may think about type 1 diabetes or certain aspects of, of the pathogenesis of type 1 diabetes. Or somebody who's a basic immunologist or a basic geneticist or a cell biologist. We really like to attract people and think about the same problem we're thinking about and help us figuring it out. Now, at a very practical level, what can NPOD offer researchers to move their type 1 diabetes research forward? So essentially, we can offer three things. And number one is, is of course, access to the tissues. The other thing that we can absolutely provide is guidance, especially for those who come from a different field, and also collaboration because we can identify suitable collaborators, have them join working groups, and it all becomes very exciting. And finally, the Emsley Charitable Trust has actually endowed MPOD with a grant from which we can make pilot grant words that we can use to support their activity when they study tissues from MPOD. Arbelto, the final question. In a perfect world, what would the next decade of type 1 diabetes research look like under this NPOD initiative? So my hope is that we will be able to discover all of the key triggers and the mechanism of disease. It's a very complex disease. We understand it's very heterogeneous among different people. And so we really like to discover all of those variables and then ideally identify therapeutic targets that we can test in clinical trials so that we will be able soon to prevent and reverse type 1 diabetes. Alberto, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there, but I very much appreciate you being on the line today and all the best for your future work. Thank you so much, Sean, and thank you to our listeners. And I would like to really honor the memory of the organ donors and their families who have consented to organ donation to advance type 1 diabetes research and save lives. Thank you, Alberto, and uh, thank you to our listening audience, as well as our kind sponsor, the Helmsley Charitable Trust. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please send an email to custompodcast at aaas.org. I'm Sean Sanders. Thank you for listening. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast, or you can search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. 
This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy and Megan Cantwell. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.